increasingly, you know, we're being told by the culture that such and such issue or this and that thought is a political thought and really belongs in the arena of politics. And therefore, the church should have nothing to say about it and just stay in your religious sphere. And if you speak about it, then you are, you're, you're being, you're not focusing on the gospel or whatever. This is the theory, but this is not true. And what it is doing is allowing essentially the world to set the agenda for what the church can speak about. Welcome to Insights, the podcast of Forerunners of America, where we are here every time to warn the nation from a biblical perspective and to help you respond in faith. And I'm very excited about what we're covering today, exposing evil, evil in our culture, because as Christians, we need to stand up and uh, share the truth, be the righteousness of Christ, his ambassador in every situation. And today we've got a great guest to really give us a, a powerful example from his life recently, just in the last couple of years, of what's been going on and how God has had him standing up for the faith in a totally different arena than he could have even imagined. And so I want to uh, shift now and welcome our guest, Jeremy Story. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you for having the opportunity to chat with you today, Dave. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation as well. And uh, I just want to let everybody know from the get-go that um, that on this Insights podcast, we're thrilled to have you, Jeremy, for a lot of reasons. But one is that you've already shared this story on on Fox News, on Glenn Beck, um, on uh, Eric Metaxas. I mean, you, you've been around here with this um, example that you're setting and what what God is doing, but also just the worldly forces that have come against you. You've been sharing this nationally. So again, thanks for being on the podcast. Before we jump in though, Jeremy, I got to say, uh, we got some rich history together in ministry and uh, it's just been really exciting. Uh, Jeremy, you are the founder of Campus Renewal Ministries. When did you actually launch Campus Renewal? When I was about five. No, I'm <laughs> No, uh, uh, when I was uh, about 18 or 19, when I was in college, and uh, actually officially right after I got out of college, 1997. Wow. So you've been doing campus renewal this whole time. And because of that, we really got connected in 2006 when uh, God put it on my heart to start something called the Institute of Campus Revival and Awakening. And we held it. You were on the leadership team with me and a few others. We held that at Yale University, meaning right on campus. We got approval. Campus ministry leaders from around the country came in for a whole week, and we addressed what's it going to take for God to move on college and university campuses. And, and we did that three years in a row. That was awesome. And then uh, right about that same time, uh, you and a few others launched the Collegiate Day of Prayer, a national effort that every campus would get prayed for uh, at the last Thursday of February every year. And it, it's been an exciting journey. I, I was on that journey with you for about 10 years, maybe a little longer, but you've continued to the present day to continue with the Collegiate Day of Prayer. So, Jeremy, we got to shift, though, to what God has had you in the middle of uh, here for about two years ago. Wasn't it two years ago when this thing started to unfold? Yes. So let's start there. Um, what kind of evil have you found yourself exposing? Like, give us a bit of the, the story here. Yeah, I mean, you know, like you just so eloquently said, you and I have been involved in college ministry. Uh, we've done pastoral work, you and I. We've done college ministry work. We've been involved in, quote, the ministry sphere. Uh, that's where we come from. And I think it's important for people who watch this podcast, whenever they do see it now or in the future, to recognize that neither Dave or I are, I've seen ourselves as culture warriors of any sort per se in that way. But, you know, nonetheless, when we stand for biblical principles, we sometimes put ourselves against the culture at large, even when we're not sort of intentionally seeing ourselves that way. And it's important that this is not, as we discuss this, we know that this is the role, the things we're going to be discussing, the role of every believer, um, pastor, uh, you know, architect, whatever, uh, you know, teacher uh, to, to stand up for righteousness in our culture and to speak prophetically when God calls you to. And increasingly, I believe that will be more and more people's uh, choice that they'll have to make. Um, for me, uh, that occurred uh, in, our in my local school district in Texas. I live in Texas. I live just outside Austin, Texas. 
in a town called Round Rock, uh, just a suburb. So if you live in a suburb, just picture your suburb. Um, and uh, I, it's one of the fastest growing uh, counties in our state. <clears throat> I went to a school board meeting because I'd been asked to, sorry, excuse me. <clears throat> I had been asked uh, to, to speak out about a concern of a superintendent they were hiring. There were some concerns because he had come from a district or was coming from at that point, a district on the border of Texas that is known for its severe corruption and actually was under um, disciplinary actions by the Texas Education Agency during the time that he was superintendent. Uh, and during that time, he did a lot of things. But one of the things that he did was he um, sent the school district police to the doorstep of a lady who was trying to expose some of the malfeasance in the school district um, and threatened her and told her that if she showed up at school board anymore, that she would be arrested and that she could only come on any campus of the school district or any property of the school district with his permission. And I saw a video of that. <clears throat> this was about a 65 year old Hispanic grandmother and she, nothing was threatening about her, but yet this happened to her. And I thought, how could this happen in, in Texas? Uh, and now this guy was coming to our district and it was concerning to me and so I went to the school district to voc vocalize my concern. Um, when you say school district, you mean the actual school board meeting. That's correct. I went to the school board meeting to just basically, along with a bunch of other community members, to say, you shouldn't hire this guy. That was really where it started. That's I had no further intention, certainly didn't intend to do interviews or, or end up being involved in things that happened later. But basically, that's all I did. But what from there, to fast forward, um, he did get hired. Uh, the meeting that I was in, I saw that he got hired, I believe, through illegal practices behind the scenes. They um, were supposed to be deliberating about whether to hire him or not. That's what they were presenting in the meeting. But once they did hire him in that meeting, um, they pulled him out of a back room and said, oh, by the way, he's here. Uh, would you like to give a speech? And I realized that two of the seven school board members had no idea that he was in the back room. They were also the two that had voted against him. So I realized that there had been some behind the scenes knowledge that uh, they did not have, which is illegal in Texas when you have that sort of a thing. And um, then uh, another friend of mine noticed that the PR director for the school district had been editing the acceptance speech of this new superintendent before he was voted on. And so that's, mm. that's a tr troublesome issue. And, and so I began to speak out about that. Uh, when I did, I was contacted uh, by a community member who then connected me with a principal in Travis County down in Austin, Texas, near me. Uh, that principal then told me, and I'll summarize a l much longer conversation, but basically she said that she had been involved with an affair and an affair with this superintendent. And this was recent at that time, and that she was now pregnant with this child. And she told me furthermore that when she had told him about her being pregnant, that he had threatened her and told her that if she didn't get an abortion, he would come give her an abortion. And she was scared. So she went to the school board via email and asked them for help, and they basically ignored her. And instead, she told me that the school district board members, uh, those five, uh, it's particularly one or two of those five in particular, went and told the superintendent that, um, that, that she had contacted the school board. And so the school district, some of these board members, instead of helping the victim, they actually increased her problems because they went to the victimizer. And that victimizer then, by the time that this woman, this principal was calling me, she was telling me she was hiding out in a hotel because he had indeed showed up at her house after the school board had informed him that, that she was trying to get help to stop him and that he had indeed threatened her, shoved her to the ground and attempted to do what he had threatened via text, which was to attack her and his own unborn child because he wanted to abort that child and she didn't want to abort the child. So I'm sitting there as a pastor, as a spiritual leader, listening to this in my home office, going over the phone, of course, and, and, and wondering, what am I supposed to do about this? Um, do I just be silent and, and go along the easy route? Or do I help this person? And I knew I was one of the only people in the district, maybe one of two or three, that knew this. And so I decided to help. Um, and I first went and verified with her that it was true, took my wife, we went to her school, she showed me the text messages. She showed me emails <clears throat> that collaborated everything that she said. She showed me pictures of bruises that were on her body. She showed me the police report. Uh, later, she showed me a ultrasound of her child. Um, and so the point being uh, that I had to do something. So when I spoke out about it uh, by emailing the board, um, 
they began to say, you know what, uh, we're not going to listen to you. We're not doing anything here. Two of the board members, the same two that had voted against him being hired, messaged me and said, uh, Mr. Story, we want to do something about this, but the other five won't let us put this on the agenda. So we can't talk about it in public without violating the law. You know, somebody needs to make some sort of, uh, you know, say something about this, you know, that they couldn't talk about it in a board meeting without it being put on the agenda. And so uh, after emailing the board about five times, asking them, and even showing them a, um, a, a restraining order that the superintendent had been served at the school district headquarters by this woman for family violence, by the, the mm. not by the woman, but because of her police complaint, complaint uh, the police showed up and served him a, a restraining order, the superintendent. And, and I presented all that to the school board members. They knew full well what was going on, but they were acting like they didn't. And uh, when I when I realized they weren't going to do anything about it, I showed up to a school board meeting. And um, I went in public comments, and and uh, I stood up to speak. And before I stood up to speak, the or as I stood up to speak, the uh, school board president did something she had done to no one else. She said, "Mr. Story, what you're about to say now, mind you, I'd not said anything, is non-germane to our topic at hand, and you cannot say it." And uh, I said, ma'am, uh, the resolution you're debating right now is about uh, security and oversight of the superintendent. They were talking about COVID restrictions and things like that and uh, the oversight of the superintendent in that and whether security was a real issue in the school district. I said, what I'm about to say has everything to do with that. It's germane to the topic. If you'll give me the opportunity, I'll show you how it's germane. She said, I don't want you to speak. <laughs> and I said, well, are, are you saying that you are going to not allow me to speak? You don't want me to speak. I just sort of repeated back to her somewhat what she had said to me. She realized she had made a mistake, and she said, well, okay, you can speak. She said, yes. I began to speak. I got about 30 seconds into my speech. I used the word protective order against the superintendent, and she screamed, uh, banged her gavel, and said, that's inappropriate. You can't say that. Waved her hand in the air. The superintendent kind of gently nods his head like this. Um, I know that by looking at the tape now. I didn't notice it at the time because it happened so quickly. Next thing I know, there are two police officers instantaneously – for the school district police officers, who are not uh, like city police officers, school district ones, who report to the superintendent, by the way, in Texas. That's how it works. They mm -hmm. grabbed me from behind while I was on the public comment stand. Not, I wasn't threatening anyone, you know, yelling at anyone or anything. While I'm speaking, they grabbed me and pulled me back out of the room, at which point I did begin to speak louder to continue my speech and telling them that they were violating the law, the Constitution. And they were under threat of lawsuit as a result of what their actions were. And those officers drug me out of the room against my will, uh, and then escorted me out of the school building and deposited me out the front door. Hmm. So, okay, at, at this point, you've got a decision to make, I mean, from here forward, like if you're going to stay involved in trying to surface the truth here. And yeah. isn't that what this is about, is that you're trying to to bring the truth forward about this uh, superintendent? And he is now, is the superintendent, correct? Yes, he is. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I, uh, he's the only superintendent, as far as I know, in Texas that has a protective order for family violence in his history, you know, um, uh, and, and the TEA got involved at one point, the school, which is our regulatory agency here in Texas, the, the school board, uh, hired an independent investigator, independent investigator told them to fire the guy or to not renew his contract. And, um, they stuffed the report, tried to hide it from the public, uh, and then, and then, uh, rehired him, <laughs> Uh, after putting him on suspension. And they only put him on suspension because I and others were speaking out about it to the point that the TEA got involved. But that's a whole nother conversation. The point is, is fast forward past all this, I did continue to speak out, as you said. I did continue to say that this was wrong, that, that what they were doing and pulling me out of the board meeting was wrong. They, uh, I went to the next board meeting and they, at that point, pulled all the chairs out of a couple hundred chair room down to about eight or nine chairs they put police officers for the school district in front of the doors to the boardroom and prevented access for a majority of the parents. Hmm. And um, uh, it was a real problem. I mean, that's illegal. And, and that's, I'm summarizing a much longer story. And then when I tried to go in, uh, telling them that, you know, I had the right to walk in and I was going to walk around them and I wasn't going to touch them or anything like that. I just wanted to walk around and go into the public meeting. After 30 minutes of not answering any of our parent, any of the parents' questions about why they were standing in front of the doors, or even if we could or couldn't go in, they wouldn't even tell us that. They sprung into action and pinned me to a pole, shoved me to the ground, and I called the 911. 
who took the police report for me, and then we moved forward from there. But the point was, within 30 days of that original incident where they yanked me off the stand, when I wouldn't be quiet, and when I continued to press uh, against the unrighteousness in our school district, um, they showed up with the sh- they used the they leveraged the sheriff in our area, and had the sheriff's deputies come to my home uh, about 30 days after that original incident, and in front of my kids and my wife, arrest me and put me in jail. So, Jeremy, when you mentioned about exposing unrighteousness, um, I just got to read this from Ephesians chapter 5 because it just nails exactly what you found yourself in. And it says this, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but indeed expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. And Jeremy, you were being the light in this situation. So anyway, keep going. Well, in short, I mean, there's so many details, but there's just not enough time. And I want to make sure we talk, like you said, through the through the implications and actions that we can take out of it, lessons learned sort of thing. But essentially, uh, 30 days after that original incident where they yanked me off the police stand, when I wouldn't be quiet and continue to speak out about the dangers of the superintendent and the school board and the things that they were doing to support him, at least five of them. Um, I was at my home office one day and uh, they leveraged the sheriff of our area, our county and his dep- the deputies to come to my house and arrest me in front of my parent, uh, my, my parents, in front of my kids, uh, my kids and my wife. Um, they banged on the door. Uh, we thought somebody was breaking into the house. We didn't th- cause I've never dealt with the police before like that. We actually thought someone was literally trying to rob us because they were banging. It wasn't like a gentle knock and they continued Mm -hmm. to bang. Our, my initial thought was to get my family up in the upstairs room because I didn't know who it was or whether they were trying to bang, what was going on. As we discerned who it was, the phone rang and they were calling my wife and they, uh, I don't know how they got her number, but it was the police officers outside. And they basically told my wife that if I did not come out and I was there, she put me on speakerphone that, um, that they would charge my son, one of my, one of my oldest kids, with aiding and abetting a criminal, they said, and that he would be charged with worse things than they were going to charge me with. How can, how can that be legal? Like, it isn't. That's a, that's a threat. No, our lawyer has since told me, and I believe what he's saying, that that was completely illegal. Uh, well, illegal in the sense that there is no such law. There is no use of that law in that way, and that my son had not aided and abetted anyone, and I certainly wasn't a criminal. But what they were trying to do was lie and manipulate to get me out in the front yard because the kind of warrant they had did not allow them to breach my front door. And so unless I gave them permission to come in my house or I went outside, they couldn't arrest me. So they literally freaked my wife out, threatened my children in order to achieve their goal of getting me out in the front yard. And when they did get me in the front yard, they uh, put me in handcuffs and put me in the back of a car uh, and took took me to jail. So how did you get out of jail? Um, you know, this, this, when I was in the car, I thought I've, I've never had an interaction like this and I didn't even fully know why they were arresting me. Right. All I knew is that round rock ISD was involved for the most part. I didn't know the details because they didn't have a, a written warrant when they showed up at my door and they weren't able to produce one. If they had one, they certainly didn't produce it because I asked them for it. And, uh, they just said, oh, we're just doing our job, blah, blah, blah. But they were more than doing their job. They were involved. And uh, they knew it. They knew what, what was going on. Uh, and so I um, started, I was like, Lord, what do you do when you're in the, you know, when you've been arrested and all this is going on? What do you do? And I remembered Paul and Barnabas in the Bible just praying and worshiping. Uh, and so shortly after they saw Lydia converted, you know, they, they ended up getting put in jail. And, and so I just started worshiping and praying in the back of the police car and just, praying for the police, worshiping the Lord. The officer said, what are you doing back there? And I said, uh, <laughs> I'm just praying and worshiping. Can I pray for you? And he said, no, no, you, no, don't worry about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so uh, we got to the jail. They had told me, you know, if you'll just turn yourself in and come with us, we're just kind of doing our job. Well, we've got a special judge that'll process, process you and you'll be out in no time, Mr. Story. We, no big deal. You know, we don't even know what this is about. Well, the second this officer got me behind the door of the jail, the other officer looked at me and said, oh, you're going to be here all weekend. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you talking about? That's not what was just told me about this guy. 
And he said, well, you must have misheard. And I said, no, sir, I don't know who you normally deal with, but I did not mishear. I'm very clear what he said. And he said, oh, I think you just misunderstood. You're going to be here all weekend. We don't have a judge for you. So they lied again to procure their results. And uh, then once I got to the jail, one of the first things I saw was a friend of mine who lived near me, who was an army captain, young guy, just like me, a believer, a firm believer in God, a uh, Christian. And he was there too. And I said, hmm. what are you doing here? You know. And he looked at what me and said, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm not really sure. They showed up at my house and this is what happened. And we discovered in that brief moment that what had happened to me at my house had happened to his house simultaneously. And that because we were both speaking out against the school district, they had created affidavits against us. My, in my case, completely a false affidavit. In his case, a very twisted affidavit. And that they had simultaneously showed up at our house as if we were some drug lords in some clandestine operation. They had to mobilize at least four cars that we could see, maybe more, to do this. So basically, this was a sting operation on people that were trying to tell the truth at a school board meeting. That's correct. And the school board... Um, in the school district and the police officers at the school district, which are not the sheriff, created a, a, a fake affidavit full of falsehoods, full of misinformation that they then handed on to the sheriff. And the sheriff and the county judge uh, involved and others collaborated with them to make this happen because nothing like this has really ever happened in Texas. And the idea that you would go from – see, 30 days – I was during that 30 days between the, when they originally did what they did at the school board. And when they showed up at my house, I was routinely talking to all the county officials saying, you need to do something about this. This is bad. Please help. I need help. I also recorded all of my phone calls because it was getting so weird. And none of them wanted to have anything to do with it. In fact, when the city police took that report and started to investigate, the county attorney told the city police to stop investigating, that he would take it on personally. But then he did nothing for 30 days. On day 30, we now know this after the fact because, of course, this, by the way, became a lawsuit, which is we're in now. So, we, I mean, I'm suing them. So we found out that on day 30, they got a warrant. They made an exception to put us in jail because there were COVID restrictions preventing that. And they mobilized cop cars all within about four hours. 30 days of no action. Four hours, we were public enemy number one, and they made all these exceptions. You don't get a warrant an affidavit, exceptions at the jail, massive carp cars mobilized in a simultaneous operation without participation on both fronts of the school district and the sheriff. There's no way the sheriff was just some innocent bystander, just got snookered into this thing. And he thought it'd be a great idea to just go after two parents, uh, you know, that they had done nothing for for 30 days. Um, and, and so they were absolutely, in fact, when I got to the jail, the other thing that I saw was that one of the officers the one that arrested me looked at me and said, uh, you know what? We also got, and this is before I got in the jail. I didn't know what he was talking about. He said, we also got your money, man, because you're running for Congress. And I'm like, uh, no, I'm not running for Congress. And uh, I have no didn't money, you, man. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, didn't, you run, didn't you run for office in 2015 or something like way, way, way before back. this? Yeah, right. Uh, but they were insinuating I was running for U.S. Congress and I had some money, man. And somehow that was related to my arrest. That's what the guy mm -hmm. said. And I said, uh, this is why we were waiting outside the jail cell to be put in process. I said, sir, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, and then he goes, I, can't, I think you can tell that I was telling the truth. And so he said, well, um, uh, oh, that must be some other person we arrested who's running for Congress. <laughs> I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, is this common? Do you guys just randomly arrest congressional candidates? Um, <laughs> you know, it was ridiculous. But the point is, is that we have to be aware that things are not always as they seem, that <clears throat> that. We need to be in the world, but not of it. And we need to face – we will face persecution when we stand up. And in my case, I had a belief that we needed a person of integrity in that office, that abortion was wrong and that life was important and that this woman was actually being threatened through, through the use of the school district power uh, to try to silence her and to try to, 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 to you know, exonerate the superintendent. And so – and that the school board was participating in that, at least five of them. And so I felt that it was need for, need for us to stand. I want you to also know in the midst of this and your listeners that I emailed tons of pastors in the area before all this happened in the middle of it saying, I've uncovered this. This is what's happening. I need your help. There were only two of them out of all the ones that I emailed that said anything back to me. And only one mm -hmm. of those two that actually practically helped. The rest 
basically hid and were silent. One of them went so far, of the rest, to actually go to the superintendent and apologize to the superintendent on my behalf, thinking that he was doing a good thing. Right. Why? Because I talked to him later, and we were good friends. We've been good friends for a long time. He said, you know, Jeremy, I would lose my standing in the community if I, um, if I stood out for this, if I said anything. And I said back to him, why do you have standing in the community? Why are we pastors? Why are we leaders? You know, if it's all about just <clears throat> what works for us, and we're not willing to face hardship for doing the right thing, what are we doing? Okay, so Jeremy, you were willing to do the right thing. You were willing to sacrifice, face hardship, face consequences. So why? And I appreciate you in a moment ago just quoting the scriptures there, but anything else biblically that like prompted you to respond in faith this way, to not just pretend it all didn't exist and turn the TV on and just enjoy your life? I just felt that, you know, when I wasn't looking for any of this, I was not seeking any of this. I could not have predicted any of this. You know, it became a national news story. It became a national lawsuit in federal courts. It still is. I was not looking to be an advocate for, you know, righteousness and education. But oftentimes God puts things in our pathway and we have a choice whether we're going to say yes or no. Um, and I didn't know when I said yes to, yeah, I will help you as a lady who is being abused by this man of power. I will help you get, get this resolved. I didn't realize what I was saying yes to fully. I just knew that in that moment, I needed to obey and do the right thing with what had been presented to me. And I needed to do it with wisdom. So I went and investigated. I brought my wife. You know, We figured it out. We determined that, that what she was saying was, was truthful. And I realized that there was no one else that seemed to be willing to take that stand. And so somebody needed to, and I did. I didn't realize that all this other stuff that happened, the arrest and the, the national news story and all that, that was not part of the plan. I was just obeying in the moment of, you know, the Lord put this in front of me and I needed to do something about it. Um, and so, so really there wasn't a master plan. There was just an obedience in the moment. And God often takes obediences in the moment or steps of obedience in the moment and goes well beyond what we were thinking would happen through that step. In addition to just doing the right thing in the moment and then God <clears throat> takes you into things you probably wouldn't have said yes to if you'd known about it or you, you would have been more hesitant. I think that's scriptures full of that sort of a thing where the Lord takes us where beyond what we even knew. For me, one of the ways, though, that God began to affirm that he was in this and that I needed to persevere was when I was in the jail cell. It was about midnight or so in the jail cell. I'd never been in jail before. I didn't really know what to do. And one of the officers who was trying to be helpful, not one that arrested me, but another one, and said, hey, Mr. Story, just, just keep your head down. You'll be okay. I didn't really know what that meant. But I went in there, and I started talking with the other guys. Uh, what, one thing is they, they locked me into a cell. And they happened to, I believe because they were being punitive, they locked me into the detox cell for alcohol and, and drugs. Although I've never drank, and I, don't, I wasn't in any way intoxicated. But they put me in there with other people who were going through that. Uh, and it's basically, it was a cement floor, very little rectangular room with about 11 guys in it and a toilet in the corner. So very tight quarters, many of whom are going through active detox in that moment. And I said, you know, I'm sitting there praying, Lord, I don't know what to do. I can't trust the police. I don't know who I can trust in this room. Lord, you know, what do you want? <clears throat> um, they had all been sharing in this room, these, these guys in the jail about what they were in for. And why they were frustrated about it and angry and, and things like that. And uh, long story short, about midnight, one of them started crying. And I felt the Lord say to me, ask him what you can pray for him for. And I thought back to the Lord, that's not a great way to keep your head down in jail. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and then the Lord, I felt, said back to me, who can you trust here? And I realized the only person I could really trust was the Lord himself. So I did. I said, how can I pray for you? Can I pray for you? And that young man looked up and said, and of course, everybody else saw at this moment, because it was, we're all in tight quarters, said, yes, you can pray for me. And so I began to share the gospel with him and talk about how we were all in a jail and that spiritually we're in a jail too, but God wants to set us free to our full destinies of what he made us for. And the young man said, I've always wanted to start a business. We're having this conversation in front of all these other guys. And so I began to explain to him a little bit more about the gospel. And as I do that, the guy next to me says, hey, man, are you a Christian? 
And I thought, oh, no, uh, this guy's going to hurt me or something. Um, and I said, yes. And he said, so am I. And he starts to pull up his shirt. And I'm like, oh, no, what's going to happen next? And he had a full-size tattoo from his chest down to his belly button of a picture of Jesus on his chest. Then he pulled up his sleeve. And he had one of the Psalms tattooed on his sleeve that said, you know, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And at that point, I realized the Lord was saying, not only am I with you, I'm, I'm literally right next to you tattooed on this dude's chest. You get my picture? You know, he said, I was like, okay, Lord, I get it. You're here. And then while I'm thinking about, oh my goodness, this, this doesn't even feel like I'm living this, but I'm really in it. I'm in a jail. The God's, God's revealing himself to me. He had this guy the whole night. I didn't know it, but there was, his face was tattooed on this guy's chest underneath his shirt. Then he rolls up his sleeve over here and shows three crosses. And I had just been explaining how there were two thieves on the cross next to Jesus and one out of pride rejected him and the other one in humility accepted him. And I used this guy's tattoo to finish the story. <laughs> hmm. And I'm like, Lord, I mean, who could have done that? You know, and I remind, that's when the Lord spoke to me just to remind me that he was there. This wasn't by accident. This wasn't because I'd done something terribly wrong and found myself here, that the Lord was literally in the midst of this persecution. He didn't cause it, but he was going to use it for his glory. And then when I was in church after I'd gotten out of jail, oh, I got out of jail because you asked me that while all this is going inside the jail. Oh, by the way, that young man, I pray for him. He then comes to know Jesus. He says, no, 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 let me, let me pray for myself. And he prays quietly. He looks up out of nowhere and starts having these epiphanies from the Lord in front of all these other guys. And he says, I didn't know somebody could love me this way. I didn't know I could ever feel this way. I didn't know I ever had this kind of worth. Hmm. He's just, and ever the guys can tell he's being totally serious because I didn't coach him to say any of it, right? They're all hmm. around. So then a guy over in the corner goes, hey, man, you prayed for him. Can you pray for me? I'm like, <laughs> okay. And this guy was going through detox. The guy over in the corner, he's throwing up and all this. So I start praying for him. He then looks at the rest of the guys and said, hey, you can't leave them out. You guys want him to pray for you too? I said, and they, and they said, yeah. And so next thing I know, we're praying all for each other. And it changed wow. the whole atmosphere in that jail cell. Wow. And I, reminded, I was reminded that God can take bad things and turn them into good. And then when I was worshiping later at church, after I had um, gone through a lot more stuff that I can't go through in this short period of time, the Lord spoke to me really clearly. He said, I set you up and I will not let you fail. And I was what first. Did, what did he? What did he mean spirit. by that? What do you think he meant by that? I was offended at first. I'm like, because I've never thought of the word "set up" in that. I don't usually say things like that. So it was, I knew it was from the Lord, uh, and I was like, "Set me up," you know. And then I realized no one could predict that going to a school board meeting that you know months later you'd be on Glenn Beck and Eric Metaxas and being speaking about this to the whole nation and taking on a school district and all the things that happened. No one thinks I go to a school board meeting and that's going to happen. So there's no way I could have procured this through planning. What has happened has been the Lord taking something, standing up in a seed of standing up for righteousness and multiplying it well beyond what I could have thought of, both in the jail cell where I was in the midst of jail and afterwards. And while I'm in that jail cell and that's happening outside the jail, how do we get out? Well, one reason is outside the jail, community members had decided to hold a, a round-the-clock prayer gathering that they said they were refusing to leave until they released me and this other gentleman. And they were that praying outside around the clock. I didn't know that was going on because they didn't tell us in jail. I didn't know it until I, they released me out the front door and I see all these people gathered to pray. <laughs> I'm absorbing that, and as I'm absorbing that, then there's news cameras that come up. And none of that did I plan, right? So the point is the Lord can take our obedience far beyond what we expect. It's so powerful because you are standing up for what's right. You're doing the good and right thing in this situation. And then the community now, at least a, a number of them, are standing up to do the good and right thing to see you released. I mean, this is this whole thing where we don't just sit back and pretend that all these problems in our culture are going to go away, but indeed we stand up. This is a perfect illustration of that. Well, let me tell you the flip side to that. And it's not just for you, but for everyone that may listen to this. Don't think it's all going to be hunky-dory when you do. Um, the Bible's full of stories of toughness. And I wish I had all the time in the world to tell you the details of the toughness, not just for me, for those two school board members that took a stand, 
for other community members. We've lost a lot. I've lost a lot of relationships. I've mm. lost stuff in my own ministry, people that just abandoned you when they think, you know, I don't want to be, I, I want to take it easy. I want to go the easy route. And the school district didn't just sit and be silent. They started releasing, they released a press release, several that painted me and these other people that were standing for righteousness as people that were trying to terrorize the school district, people that were violent, people that were racist. We were accused of everything you can imagine in public, on press releases and by people on Facebook. We got threats in the mail, my wife and I. We had people stalk us. So you were actually you were actually slandered by the school board themselves, and it sounds like people that were lining up with that narrative. Yeah, and they of course work to be very careful to you know talk about it in terms of groups of people and not name specific names because they don't want to get sued for slander and all this. But basically, they created a smear campaign throughout the community, both the school board members themselves, the ones the five that were malfeasant. Plus the school district with all their authority and power and press release. The same lady that was editing the video in advance was a lady putting out the press releases that were false, making the case that the school district was simply responding to some, you know, extremist, violent people type that they were feeling threatened by um, and that they had done nothing wrong and that everything was perfect. And, and uh, you know, the people – we were the problem, that we were racist. See, this gentleman, the superintendent, his name was Haf- is Hafed Azaiz. And um, he's from Tunisia. And so they were claiming on top of everything else that we were racist, that we were doing this not because he threatened a woman and tried to kill his own child, but because he was from Tunisia for some reason. Um, and so we got we got called all kinds of things. We got drugged in mud. People would threaten me. We I got I had people follow me to meetings where I'd speak at um, all kinds of insanity uh, that has come. As a result of this, so it's painful. I've lost reputation, um, and we can expect that that to be happen. Don't feel like you're doing the wrong thing just because difficulty comes. Okay, so you're about two years into this journey, and you've had to go through this smear campaign, slander, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm sure it's been extremely uh, stressful on your wife and family and others connected and so forth. You've lost supporters to your ministry because they don't want to be associated with something that's a bit more uh, volatile, let's put it that way. Would you say, after two years, what you did, is it worth it? I would say that's not the question I would ask. We, we need to ask ourselves, what does God want and what's the right thing here? And, and if you think about the prophetic messages of the Old Testament and the New, so think about, you know, Jeremiah. God calls him to speak to the Jews of his day, of which many are his friends, you know, and he's involved with them, and to the kings, the king at the time, that the Babylonians are going to come take you over, and you better submit to them, or else it's going to get really, really bad. Well, that's not a popular message in that time, right? It's not a popular message ever. Um, But yet, that's what God called him to do. What did he get for it? Thrown in a pit. Um, Now, the Babylonians ended up showing him favor at the end of it, but it was a lot of pain for that man. And the question that wasn't whether it was worth it, but whether he was doing what God told him to do and whether it was right. And I believe that's what we have to do is to look towards a better uh, reward that the Lord will give us and, and that we're trusting him with what he says, not just the pragmatism of something. Because if we base prophetic works off pragmatism, then you won't do them because they often don't, don't necessarily make you persona grata. They're not a political move. So it can just cause a lot of difficulty in our lives and so forth. So there has to be this eternal perspective. Absolutely. I, I really feel that, that we, we you know, that, that we just, and so often as Christians, we base our decisions of obedience on whether it will pragmatically work out. Um, and I think that is from a time in the past of our country where, you know, by being a believer, it somehow got you something to some degree, or it could. But increasingly, as the middle ground falls out in our country and there is animosity towards true faith, not just calling yourself a Christian, but actively acting like one, that, um, that will result in persecution. And if we're just about pragmatism, then we will fall away from our faith. Uh, there has to be something deeper than just does it benefit us. And I, so I think that's an important lesson that I've learned is – you know, um, you may or may not be exonerated in this life uh, if you stand up for what's right. But the question is, who are you ultimately performing for? An audience of one 
or an audience of whoever's around you at the moment. Mm -hmm. So Jeremy, as you've been able to process this now, look at it from different angles and the big picture and so forth, when you look at where America's at, when you look at what you just walked through and are still walking through, like what is your message to the church in America? Courage. We need courage. We need to realize that we have lived in a country that has been uniquely blessed, not because we earned it, not because we're somehow better than everybody else, but God uniquely blessed us and gave us an opportunity for a very long time in our country to walk in our faith unpersecuted and actually thrive in our faith in our country and even export that faith around the world. Now, have we been perfect? No. Don't we have problems? Yes. But historically, the kind of environment that we have lived in for as long as we have and our generations before us is not the history of Christians on this earth. The history of Christians on this earth is one of persecution and oppression from power, not freedom from power. And so um, we have gotten used to the idea that, you know, the culture is somehow generally your friend. And so if you are ever in opposition to that culture, something's wrong with you. But in actuality, that has not been the experience of most Christians around the world, even today. They, people in Iran, Iraq, China, North Korea, Cuba, other places, Venezuela, many of these places, they have no idea that because you're a believer, somehow, if, if you get crosswise of the culture or, or, or the culture is going to be your aid or the government's going to be your aid, they understand that professing a faith in Christ will cost them something. And they have actually faced way per worse persecution than I ever have. And we need to understand that what we've had in America has been distinctly unique. And, and, and if something, because you do the right thing, persecution comes or persecution comes into our country in greater ways, we need to understand that that doesn't mean that God is somehow broken or left us or that we've done something wrong. We need to understand that, that God can be there in the midst of that. And then oftentimes when we stand for what's right, that culture opposes that. Um, and so while I pray that we will have increased blessings and open doors and not having persecution, if we have persecution, it doesn't mean something has gone wrong with us or with God. Very important to know that, that God can be with us in the midst of doing the right thing and yet still be persecuted. Well said, Jeremy. And I think that First Peter 4 speaks to this. Let's put it on the screen for those that are getting this at YouTube, and I'm going to read it. It says, starting in verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublemaker, meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. And so, Jeremy, um, th this is kind of wild that we're talking about. This is the shift that you're seeing America go into right now from being Christians, being somewhat favored to some degree or appreciated to some degree in culture to actually now we uh, become the prey, as it says in the prophets uh, in Isaiah 59, we become the ones, the, the, the ones that are doing what's good and right, become the ones that are attacked, even in this case, to a certain degree, by uh, people that we've elected onto a school board or that kind of a realm. It's very stunning that this is the conversation that we're having. But you know, Jeremy, uh, I think a lot of us, the, our listeners and so forth, that we have seen this on the news where th there's things institutions you could trust are actually being weaponized or at least antagonistic towards Christians. Yes. And this is historical, you know, in terms of we as believers do need to stand up that verse about being troublesome or metal. Some, you know, all that sometimes that can even be twisted in our theology because increasingly, you know, we're being told by the culture that such and such issue or this and that thought is a political thought and really belongs in the arena of politics. And therefore, the church should have nothing to say about it and just stay in your religious sphere. And if you speak about it, then you are, you're, you're, being, you're not focusing on the gospel or whatever. This is the theory. But this is not true. And what it is doing is allowing essentially the world to set the agenda for what the church can speak about. Because mm -hmm. if the world decides X, Y, Z, an issue uh, is a political issue, 
but yet the church knows it's also a moral issue. And we rule ourselves out to not speak out in the public sphere. Then we're essentially saying whatever you world decide you want to talk about and put into the public sphere, we as Christians need to back off of. And you guys define and the, the culture defines what we speak out. But if you look at the history of the church, even the founding of our own country, pastors and spiritual leaders were people who spoke out into the issues of the day. That's right. Especially the ones with moral implications, right? And, right? and it was the pastors and the spiritual leaders that were the guiding light to our country, not the government or the education sphere or tech sphere or whatever. Of course, it wasn't a tech sphere in the same way that day, but that wasn't it. It was the spiritual leaders. And we have abdicated that by letting someone else define what should be on our, our words and agenda. And that's very concerning. And it comes from a dualistic worldview that we must abandon and recognizing that everything is owned by God and we're called to be ambassadors in his world. And therefore, there's nothing beyond God's word and his ability to speak into a situation. There's no space in our culture that the church should not have a voice into, uh, specifically that God should not have a voice into through the church. I think that God through the Bible, God has a perspective on almost everything going on in culture. Like this lady that gets pregnant and she gets attacked by this guy. And um, there's supposed to be an abortion, possibly every step of this, the Bible speaks to it. God has an opinion about everything that's going on here. These are not, again, like you're saying, this is not a political issue. This is fundamentally a biblical issue. I would just say, instead of saying it's a culture war, this is actually a war between what is good and right and what is evil and wicked. And for Christians to pretend that we have nothing to say to the culture because, um, because, it's it, we're, we're looking at good and right versus evil. That's crazy. We, we're the ones, like you just said, we're the ones that should be coming in with God's truth, his heart, love for these people to see what's good and right accomplished, to see what's just, to mm-hmm. see that happen. The, you know, there's so much uh, going on here where, where you're, I think what you're saying, Jeremy, is the church, the Christians, we've been fooled. We've been fooled in such a tricky, crafty way that we think we don't have to be salt in the culture anymore. Jesus called us salt and light, but it's almost like we've believed these lies in this sort of scheme of the enemy to the degree that we think we shouldn't say anything. Just stay inside and be silent. And Absolutely. that is what's destroying our nation, or at least part of it. Very true. And you and I, have been involved in ministry for decades, pastoring people, leading people. So I think we can speak to other pastors. If you're watching this broadcast, uh, live stream or later, and you're a pastor, the idea that you're just going to focus on the gospel, and that means that you don't weigh into these issues uh, because you want to be more focused on the gospel, that is not a biblical idea. Because God owns all things and and the question is, unto what? That's what I say to you as a leader, because I, I, I want to put Jesus first. I'm not a culture warrior in that sense at all. My point is that if it is about the gospel, then unto what? If that's your vision of the gospel, if it's that narrow, because so they come to know Jesus and they follow him. And then what? What does it mean for the world around those people? Because they live in the education sphere and in the workplace and in all these places. And God wants to have salt and light there. So if we're all just to be about the gospel, then all we're doing is extracting people from a world that needs Jesus and, and then telling the next person, you need to be just, quote, about the gospel. And that means you don't speak into these, quote, controversial things. And the more we do that, the more the enemy just eats us alive. It's very insightful. And it's just so vital that we are not um, buying these lies. I, I would say this about the gospel it's actually in several places called the gospel of the kingdom. And as soon as you start to understand what it means by God's kingdom, and oh, by the way, there's a domain of darkness, even the gospel, if you understand the gospel of the kingdom, Christ's uh, kingdom is supposed to replace the kingdom of darkness in your community. So get out there and say something that has to do with righteousness and the truth, expose lies, expose evil, et cetera. And, you know, Jeremy, Jeremy, we got to wrap up here, but I was just going to say, I appreciate you so much doing that very thing that you are bringing the righteousness of Christ, the truth against these lies. We have a father of lies. This is a spiritual warfare. 
And so um, what you've done here is obviously um, you've had some backlash. The enemy does not like that. But again, as you also highlighted, as we have that eternal perspective, Christ is glorified when we stand up for him in culture. Yeah, I don't see how we can do anything else but, you know, press in and, and obey him and what he calls us to do. And sometimes, many times, that obedience will cost us something. Uh, and, and the idea that just following Jesus is something that only happens in your mind, that you immensely assent to him and a- agree to certain sets of facts, but it doesn't show up in your everyday life in a way that impacts the world around you. And, and in a sense, because it's impacting the world around you, you are different than your culture outwardly. Um, that, that, that's false. And, and it's a Gnostic idea that's rooted in Western uh, thought that because you think something, you are that. But that's not true. You know, belief alone, the Bible tells us, is not sufficient. Um, yes, it is, it is our submission to Jesus that saves us. Nothing we do can earn our salvation. But the Bible also reminds us that this idea that faith and works go together, that you know someone has authentic, true biblical faith that, that yeah. when they do what they say. Jesus said, there are two men. One built his house on sand, the other built his house on a rock. Both of them, it says, heard the word of the Lord. The only difference between those two men and the way Jesus described them, there's only one sentence there that shows the difference. One did what he heard, the other didn't. The other just heard. Yeah. We need yeah. to be that first man or the, 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 or the second man that, that built his house on a rock. And that means we obey and take action even when it costs us on what we know. Well said, and I think that you just gave every listener, myself included, our marching orders to be doers of the word, not just hearers. And Jeremy, I think we're going to wrap it up right there. Thank you again for your um, your life, your example. I know you said you didn't go looking for this, but at the end of the day, you did become an example to many of us. And so thank you for standing firm, not backing down, doing what's right. And by the way, uh, on behalf of myself and all our listeners, go ahead and thank your wife as well, because I know that she's had to stand through thick and thin in this thing as well. So any just final uh, footnote here, uh, Jeremy? Yeah. I am thankful for her. She's had to stick with a lot of this. Final thought, I'm no better than anybody else. And neither are you, neither are any of us. So if you feel inadequate and you're listening to this and you, you know, I'm the same way through this whole thing, and I have my own hangouts, my own problems, the own things I, I need to deal with that I'm pressing in with the Lord for, for betterment. But in the midst of the fact that none of us are perfect, none of us have got it all figured out, that doesn't mean that we can't take faith-filled action. And, and so, you know, don't allow that to stop you either. Just operate from a place of, hey, I know I'm no better than everybody else, but I'm going to obey God with whatever he tells me in the, in the moment in front of me. Again, well said. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks for being with me here on Insights. And I want to thank you as well for being with us here on Insights. I look forward to being with you next time.